This is e-commerce FM, the e-commerce SEO podcast with Rob Carey and Matt Young. So welcome back then. This is e-commerce FM, the SEO e-commerce podcast. I am Matt Young, one of your co-hosts, and this is Rob Carey. Hello there. How are you? Yeah, really good, mate. We've both been chatting before we started the podcast. Um, life is busy in the world of uh, digital marketing, isn't it? Yeah, it's still going well, and uh, yeah, people still eagerly buying online. So. We're just there to uh, help them out and help the brands stay in the right direction and serve those people. Absolutely, absolutely right. So on today's show, we're going to be talking about how Google crawls your website. But before we get into that, it's very exciting news because we have our first ever guest on the show next week. It's a lady by the name of Miriam Lahage. Now, Miriam has been the CEO of the lingerie website figleaves.com, and she's got a brilliant CV as well. She was a vice president at Navabi. She's worked for eBay and also TGA Max, which is the American equivalent of our TK Max here in the UK. Uh, there's nothing this lady doesn't know about e-commerce, and we're really looking forward to having her on the show next week. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on it. Let's get into this week's show then. And Rob, the uh, we're going to be talking today about how Google crews your website. So basically, how does Google get that information about your website initially? Well, we can basically break it down into three core tasks, and those are crawling, indexing, and ranking. Okay, so let's start off with how they go about crawling your website, please. So crawling is Google's discovery process, and their aim is to discover every single web page and document and video on the entire internet. And it's a really tough job because some of these web pages only have one link pointing at them, or sometimes no links at all pointing at them. And yet Google still needs to find these pages because they could have some really useful information on them. Now, when Google first started in the dorm rooms of Stanford University, they couldn't just start off by crawling a single website, let's say stanford.edu, their university website, because web pages basically live in clusters or neighborhoods and websites tend to link to websites which are similar to themselves. So if you only crawled, for example, the Stanford website as a source to find links for the entire internet, you would get a very small and very biased search engine just based on the websites that that website links to and the ones that they then link on from there. So it would be a very academic focused, maybe even politically biased search engine. So what they most likely did, uh, I couldn't find any um, details to confirm this, but I believe they started off with the DMOZ directory, which was a human-edited web directory which existed before most major search engines. And it was free to use, it was free to submit websites to it, and it was also free to download the entire database of this website directory. And because it was human-edited, it only contained very good quality websites in there. And it also covers every single country, every language, and every conceivable topic. So it gives you a really broad base from which to start a website crawl from. It also has quality assurance because of those human editors. And Google even featured the DMOS directory on their own website for many years when they first started. If you went to the Google homepage, there was a link to the Google directory, which was actually the DMOS directory. Because back then, some people still actually preferred to use web directories to navigate the internet rather than search engines. Now, Google's robot, which is called Googlebot, they would visit every single website in this seed list and scrape the web page and then look for links or URLs in the content, add those URLs to what was called a crawl queue and visit those URLs later on. 
And it's a never ending process of visiting a page, extracting those URLs, putting them in a queue, and then collecting the next URL to look at from that queue. So this entire crawl process is uh, centered around downloading these web pages. And then once they've downloaded them, they look for these links or URLs within the content. And then these days, they also use things called XML sitemaps, which are files which the webmaster can put on their website and submit to Google Search Console or link to in their robots.txt file and basically give search engines a list of pages to crawl on their website. And this is useful if your website is particularly hard to crawl, maybe because you've got a JavaScript framework, and it just makes sure that the search engines know about every single page on your website. So what does Google do with all of that downloaded content then, Rob? So this is where the indexing process comes in. So these days, Google may try to load the downloaded HTML content in Google Chrome. And this is uh, what we talked about before in our uh, JavaScript Frameworks episode, that Google doesn't actually load every single page in Google Chrome when they crawl a page. They actually download the HTML content first, and then during this indexing stage is when they then execute the Google Chrome browser and uh, see if there's any content which the JavaScript itself is loading. And they basically check to see if the content changes and if uh, the content is different from Google Chrome's version versus the raw HTML content. They remember that in future and know that this is probably a JavaScript-driven website and will need to be rendered. But of course, as we said before, there's no guarantee that they will actually use Google Chrome to render your HTML and to see the extra content. So they save this rendered HTML or DOM as we call it, which is document object markup, and they use this for the indexing process. And if they notice that you don't have any changes on your web page between the Google Chrome version and the original HTML source, then they'll just use the faster process, which is just relying on the HTML source code that they downloaded. What they then do is to extract all the important metadata. So that's your page titles, which is your title tags, your meta description tags, your canonical tags, all the information which is important to them. That includes structured data, uh, maybe from schema.org, like your product reviews and things. And it also extracts the content from the page body itself and identifies the important keywords within that content, which is actually a very difficult process to do. It also checks to see if that content has changed much since the last visit. If it hasn't really changed much or hasn't changed at all, then they know they don't have to visit that web page so often. Whereas if it has changed a lot since the last time they visited that page, they'll make sure that they visit that page more often just to make sure that they always have the freshest content. Now, Google's index is over 100 pet petabytes in size. And if you look at average computer hard drive, that's around 200,000 computer hard drives worth of data in Google's index. So it's a huge amount of information. Uh, the amount of zeros on the end of that is quite difficult for me to get my tiny little brain around it. It really is incredible. Uh, so how does all that data transform into the search results that we see when we ask Google to find us something? Well, this is where the uh, ranking process comes in. So when someone searches for a keyword, let's say Mother's Day flowers, Google uses index of keywords to find every single web page on the internet that mentions Mother's Day flowers. It will then rank those pages by relevance based on how good the content quality is and how important the page is. Content quality and relevance focuses on the keyword appearing in the title, the descriptions, the headings, and the content. 
The content itself must be really relevant and helpful. And Google's got its own special algorithms to identify what is good and what is bad content. The importance of the page is governed by the number and the quality of links pointed into that web page. And basically these are the secret source of Google. These are their ranking algorithm factors, which they never disclose. And basically nobody in Google knows the entire algorithm that's used for ranking a page. So it's not like you could go to get a job at Google, work there for a few years, find out the ranking algorithm, and then uh, take one of our jobs as a, a marketer. <laughs> if only. And uh, yeah, get number one for any keyword you like. It's, it's a very complicated process, but we kind of get an idea of what the important factors are. And that's really good quality content, very relevant to the keyword the person's searching for, but also lots of third-party links from other people of relevant websites saying this is the web page that knows the most about, let's say, Mother's Day flowers. Now, this all happens in real time, which is quite surprising for most people. Uh, unless the same query has been made recently by the exact same person or someone with almost identical uh, user profiles, uh, sort of search history and location, for example, um, they're going to actually look up this information from fresh. And it has to be real time because even in 2017, Google quoted that 15% of all Google searches have never been searched for ever before on Google. So it's not possible for them to actually do all of this data processing in advance and keep it stored away in a database. They have to do the most important crunching and ranking exactly when someone clicks submit on uh, the Google search form. And that's basically how Google works. It's fascinating stuff. I, I could literally talk about this all day long and, and, and the way that, you know, we that work in digital marketing try and figure out how, how Google works. Uh, because internally, as you've just said, people in Google don't know how this works because of the way the algorithms are constantly evolving. So uh, here's a left of center question for you then, Rob. What if we don't want Google indexing our content? Well, search engines have all agreed on a three-tier process for blocking content from themselves. Now, the first tier is what's called a robots.txt file, robots.txt, and that's uploaded to the root of your website. Um, and basically, that tells search engines what they can and can't look at. So you can block your entire website from search engines or specific search engines. You can say certain folders, such as your admin or CMS folder, can't be indexed. Or you can give it specific URLs that you won't want to appear in a Google search result or in any search engines index. And you can also tell search engines where your XML sitemap is located as well, which is something we talked about just before, which is the list of URLs that you have on your website, which makes it easier for search engines to index every single URL on your website. The second tier is called a XRobots tag HTTP header. Now, HTTP headers are basically metadata that gets sent from your web server to a person's web browser before a web page is even loaded. So this basically tells the web browser, does the page exist, which is where you get your codes such as 200 OK message or 404 page not found, which is what most people know about is the 404 page not found. It can also tell the web browser when the page was last modified, which potentially means that the browser could actually use its own internal cache to just use a saved copy of that page rather than load it from scratch again. 
And it also tells the web browser what kind of content is on that page as well. So that URL could have a HTML web page, but it could also have an image, a video, or even a zip file to download. So you can configure your web server to serve a X robots tag header. And this will tell search engines not to index a page or not to follow the links on that page before it even downloads the web page. So this is where it actually becomes quite handy because if you can't put this information in the robots.txt file, you can save your servers from a lot of resource and bandwidth being used up, maybe pressure that's being put on your web server by using this header rather than the meta tag, which is the next thing we'll talk about because the search engine will immediately see this X robots tag saying, do not index this page and it won't even bother to download the HTML. So your server can continue to serve those pages to real users. The third tier is what I just mentioned, robots meta tag. So this is mostly used for individual pages that you don't want to appear in search results. You basically have a situation here where search engines have to visit every single URL that it knows about on your website and download those pages before it can actually see if you have this robots meta tag in place. So you're actually creating a lot of resource and a lot of pressure on your server for no reason at all. And they have to download this content anyway before they're told, actually, please don't index this, please discard this information. Some great stuff there, Rob. So what happens then? I think you might have just touched on it when we move or delete a web page. If there's no longer a page at the URL that Google visits, the server will return a 404 page not found error, which we see quite a lot when we surf the internet. Sometimes uh, you'll move or delete a page by mistake. And because of that, Google will continue to revisit that URL, even if it gets a 404 page not found error. And it'll continue to visit that page for months and months, even years going forward, just in case that page comes back to life just in case it was a mistake and you go, whoops, you know, I'm gonna put that page back up again and that content's available. So if you urgently you need to remove a page from Google's index, maybe because you have something controversial on your website or you published the wrong pricing information, or you just need to get it out of the search results as soon as possible, you can tell your server to serve a 410 error instead. And a 410 stands for gone. And it basically tells Google that that URL will never have a page on ever again. So Google can just remove it from its index straight away. And from experience, Google can actually remove a page which returns a 410 message within hours of you putting it up. So it's a very effective way of taking down content uh, if you're in a situation where you've got incorrect or controversial information displayed on your website. But it can be tempting to go, oh, well, I might as well just serve a 410 instead of a 404 page not found but it's a very dangerous thing to use as a blanket rule. You know, you don't want to accidentally move or delete a page and then for your server to say, oh, it's 410, it's gone, because then Google may never revisit that page again. So you could upload it again, but Google won't go to that URL because it thinks the content's removed. You'll end up having to create a whole new page for that content if you accidentally move or delete it. With that in mind there, Rob, what's the correct way to move a web page? You want to immediately serve a 301 permanent redirect header from the old URL location to the new one. And this can be done using your web server or sometimes in your e-commerce platform as well, especially if you've got a SEO plugin installed. It will usually have a redirects uh, option on there where you can insert new redirects onto your website. 
this 301 redirect should exist forever. You shouldn't just put it up temporarily whilst Google realizes that your page is located and remove it afterwards. You know, you never know when search engines are going to revisit that old URL. And also, if there's any links at all pointing at that old URL, you want that authority to flow into its new location. And that's what 301 redirect can do for you. You really don't want to be using a 302, which is a temporary redirect, though. It's used a lot in applications by web developers, especially when they don't quite understand uh, the implications for SEO. Um, the temporary redirect basically tells Google, for example, that the page has moved, but it will probably go back to its originally, original location at some point. So don't trust the redirect. And because of that, Google has struggled to handle 302 redirects for decades. Basically, since they existed, they haven't been able to properly handle a 302. Because, you know, what can you do in this situation? You can't apply all of the authority and those links that are pointing the old URL to the new location because at any moment, that old URL is going to come back to life again. That's what the 302 redirect is saying. So quite often, these pages, when they're 302 redirected, they'll struggle to rank like the old URL did. And sometimes the old URL will actually appear in the search results rather than the new URL, despite showing that new content. So it can cause some real issues and some very quirky search results as a result of that. So, you know, only use these 302 redirects behind a login screen, behind checkout pages, situations where search engines aren't likely to find them. Now, there is a few examples where you might want to use 302s on your publicly facing website. So, for example, I'm working on a website at the moment where they're going to launch a country specific subfolder on their .com website before they actually launch the main .com website in the web route. So the .com homepage is going to temporarily 302 redirect to this new country subfolder just until we launch the main global site on the .com. And because this is a temporary move, then we can use this 302 redirect because we don't want all the authority getting passed into this country subfolder because in a few weeks time, the homepage is going to stop serving that 302, start serving a real homepage. And we want that authority flown into that real homepage. But because this is such a tricky situation, we've actually blocked search engines from the entire .com website until we're ready to serve the main homepage on the website. It's just too risky to have these 302s out in the wild. And we're going to cover more on these issues actually in a couple of weeks. Um, we're going to have an episode coming up, which will be about perfect product page. And I'll talk about how to handle things like out of stock products, your schema.org, uh, date, structured data markup, your reviews, and how to get the most out of these pages. So we'll definitely cover a lot more on this subject going forward in that episode. Fantastic. Uh, covered so much in there. Um, again, I, I say this at the end of the uh, end of the shows. Do go and have a look at the website, ecommerce.fm. Uh, there is a full text download. You can see everything that uh, Rob and I have been talking about in this week's show on there. Uh, and of course, whilst you're there, uh, you can uh, follow us. You can send us a message if you've uh, got a question for myself or Rob uh, for future shows. And of course, you can see all of our social media links uh, on there as well. That's ecommerce.fm. And don't forget, 
forget that on next week's show, we've got our special guest, Miriam Lahage. Uh, she is the former CEO of the lingerie website, figleaves.com, uh, a real stalwart. And uh, she's got so much experience when it comes to e-commerce. So I think we're both, myself and Robert, are really looking forward to speaking to her next week. Um, Rob, we're done and dusted for another week. Uh, I think I've drained your brain of all the uh, Google information I can do today. So uh, thanks very much for all your time and uh, looking forward to catching up with you next week. Yeah, definitely. Next episode is going to be a fantastic one as well. So yeah, really looking forward to it. This is e-commerce FM, the e-commerce SEO podcast with Rob Carey and Matt Young.